Section 13 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section thirteen chapter sixty five part four de witt sensible of this dangerous situation and alarmed by the reports which came from all quarters exerted himself to supply those defects to which it was not easy of a sudden to provide a suitable remedy but every proposal which he could make met with opposition from the orange party now become extremely formidable the long and uncontrolled administration of this statesman had begotten envy. The present incidents roused up his enemies and opponents, who ascribed to his misconduct alone the bad situation of the Republic, and above all the popular affection to the young prince, which had so long been held in violent constraint, and had thence acquired new accession of force, began to display itself and to threaten the commonwealth with some great convulsion william the third prince of orange was in the twenty-second year of his age and gave strong indications of those great qualities by which his life was afterwards so much distinguished de witt himself by giving him an excellent education and instructing him in all the principles of government and sound policy had generously contributed to make his rival formidable Dreading the precarious situation of his own party, he was always resolved, he said, by conveying to the prince the knowledge of affairs, to render him capable of serving his country, if any future emergence should ever throw the administration into his hands. The conduct of William had hitherto been extremely laudable. Notwithstanding his powerful alliances with England and Brandenburg, he had expressed his resolution of depending entirely on the states for his advancement and the whole tenor of his behaviour suited extremely the genius of that people silent and thoughtful given to hear and to inquire of a sound and steady understanding firm in what he once resolved or once denied strongly intent on business little on pleasure by these virtues he engaged the attention of all men and the people, sensible that they owed their liberty and very existence to his family, and remembering that his great-uncle Maurice had been able, even in more early youth, to defend them against the exorbitant power of Spain, were desirous of raising this prince to all the authority of his ancestors, and hoped, from his valour and conduct alone, to receive protection against those imminent dangers with which they were at present threatened. While these two powerful factions struggled for superiority, every scheme for defence was opposed, every project retarded. What was determined with difficulty was executed without vigour. Levies, indeed, were made, and the army completed to seventy thousand men. The prince was appointed both general and admiral of the commonwealth, and the whole military power was put into his hands but new troops could not of a sudden acquire discipline and experience 
and the partisans of the prince were still unsatisfied as long as the perpetual edict so it was called remained in force by which he was excluded from the stadtholdership and from all share in the civil administration it had always been the maxim of de witt's party to cultivate naval affairs with extreme care and to give the fleet a preference above the army which they represented as the object of an unreasonable partiality la the princes of orange the two violent wars which had of late been waged with england had exercised the valor and improved the skill of the sailors and above all de ruyter the greatest sea commander of the age was closely connected with the lovestein party and every one was disposed with confidence and alacrity to obey him the equipment of the fleet was therefore hastened by de witt in hopes that by striking at first a successful blow he might inspire courage into the dismayed states and support his own declining authority he seems to have been in a peculiar manner incensed against the english and he resolved to take revenge on them for their conduct of which he thought he himself and his country had such reason to complain by the offer of a close alliance for mutual defence they had seduced the republic to quit the alliance of france but no sooner had she embraced these measures than they formed leagues for her destruction with that very power which they had treacherously engaged her to offend in the midst of full peace nay during an intimate union they attacked her commerce her only means of subsistence and moved by shameful rapacity had invaded that property which from a reliance on their faith they had hoped to find unprotected and defenceless contrary to their own manifest interest as well as to their honor they still retained a malignant resentment for her successful conclusion of the former war a war which had at first sprung from their own wanton insolence and ambition to repress so dangerous an enemy would de witt imagined give peculiar pleasure and contribute to the future security of his country whose prosperity was so much the object of general envy actuated by like motives and views de ruyter put to sea with a formidable fleet consisting of ninety-one ships of war and forty-four fire-ships cornelius de witt was on board as deputy from the states they sailed in quest of the english who were under the command of the duke of york and who had already joined the french under mariscal de tries the combined fleets lay at sole bay in a very negligent posture and sandwich being an experienced officer had given the duke warning of the danger but received it is said such an answer as intimated that there was more of caution than of courage in his apprehensions upon the appearance of the enemy every one ran to his post with precipitation and many ships were obliged to cut their cables in order to be in readiness sandwich commanded the van and though determined to conquer or to perish he so tempered his courage with prudence that the whole fleet was visibly indebted to him for its safety he hastened out of the bay where it had been easy for de ruyter with his fire-ships to have destroyed the combined fleets which were crowded together and by this wise measure he gave time to the duke of york who commanded the main body and to mariscal de tries admiral of the rear to disengage themselves he himself meanwhile rushed into battle with the hollanders 
and by presenting himself to every danger, had drawn upon him all the bravest of the enemy. He killed Van Ghent, a Dutch admiral, and beat off his ship. He sunk another ship, which ventured to lay him aboard. He sunk three fire-ships, which endeavored to grapple with him. And though his vessel was torn in pieces with shot, and of a thousand men she contained, near six hundred were laid dead upon the deck, he continued still to thunder with all his artillery in the midst of the enemy. But another fire-ship, more fortunate than the preceding, having laid hold of his vessel, her destruction was now inevitable. Warned by Sir Edward Haddock, his captain, he refused to make his escape, and bravely embraced death, as a shelter from that ignominy which a rash expression of the duke's, he thought, had thrown upon him. During this fierce engagement with Sandwich, de Ruyter remained not inactive. He attacked the Duke of York, and fought him with such fury for above two hours, that of two and thirty actions in which that admiral had been engaged, he declared this combat to be the most obstinately disputed. The Duke's ship was so shattered that he was obliged to leave her, and remove his flag to another. His squadron was overpowered with numbers, till Sir Joseph Jordan, who had succeeded to Sandwich's command, came to his assistance, and the fight, being more equally balanced, was continued till night, when the Dutch retired, and were not followed by the English. The loss sustained by the fleets of the two maritime powers was nearly equal, if it did not rather fall more heavy on the English. The French suffered very little, because they had scarcely been engaged in the action. And as this backwardness is not their national character, it was concluded that they had received secret orders to spare their ships, while the Dutch and English should weaken each other by their mutual animosity. Almost all the other actions during the present war tended to confirm this suspicion. It might be deemed honorable for the Dutch to have fought with some advantage the combined fleet of two such powerful nations, but nothing less than a complete victory could serve the purpose of De Witt, or save his country from those calamities which, from every quarter, threatened to overwhelm her. He had expected that the French would make their attack on the side of Maestricht, which was well fortified and provided with a good garrison. But Louis, taking advantage of his alliance with Cologne, resolved to invade the enemy on that frontier, which he knew to be more feeble and defenceless. The armies of that elector, and those of Munster, appeared on the other side of the Rhine, and divided the force and attention of the states. The Dutch troops, too weak to defend so extensive a frontier, were scattered into so many towns, that no considerable body remained in the field, and a strong garrison was scarcely to be found in any fortress. Lewis passed the Meuse at Viset, and lay siege to Orsoy, a town of the elector of Brandenburg's, but garrisoned by the Dutch. He carried it in three days. He divided his army, and invested at once Berwick, Wessel, Emmerich, and Rimburg, four places regularly fortified, and not unprovided with troops. In a few days all these places were surrendered. A general astonishment had seized the Hollanders, from the combination of such powerful princes against the Republic, and nowhere was resistance made suitable to the ancient glory or present greatness of the state. 
governors without experience commanded troops without discipline and despair had universally extinguished that sense of honor by which alone men in such dangerous extremities can be animated to a valorous defence lewis advanced to the banks of the rhine which he prepared to pass to all the other calamities of the dutch was added the extreme drought of the season by which the greatest rivers were much diminished and in some places rendered fordable the french cavalry animated by the presence of their prince full of impetuous courage but ranged in exact order flung themselves into the river the infantry passed in boats a few regiments of dutch appeared on the other side who were unable to make resistance and thus was executed without danger but not without glory the passage of the rhine so much celebrated at that time by the flattery of the french courtiers and transmitted to posterity by the more durable flattery of their poets each success added courage to the conquerors and struck the vanquished with dismay the prince of orange though prudent beyond his age was but newly advanced to the command unacquainted with the army unknown to them and all men by reason of the violent factions which prevailed were uncertain of the authority on which they must depend it was expected that the fort of skink famous for the sieges which it had formerly sustained would make some resistance but it yielded to turin in a few days the same general made himself master of arnheim Notzenburg, and nimeguin as soon as he appeared before them duisburg at the same time opened its gates to lewis soon after hardwick amersfoort campen rennen vian elberg svol quilemberg wageningen lockham warden fell into the army's hands grohl and deventer surrendered to the mariscal luxembourg who commanded the troops of munster and every hour brought to the states news of the rapid progress of the french and of the cowardly defence of their own garrisons the prince of orange with his small and discouraged army retired into the province of holland where he expected from the natural strength of the country since all human art and courage failed to be able to make some resistance the town and province of utrecht sent deputies and surrendered themselves to lewis narden a place within three leagues of amsterdam was seized by the marquis of rochfort and had he pushed on to Maiden, he had easily gotten possession of it fourteen stragglers of his army having appeared before the gates of that town the magistrates sent them the keys but a servant-maid who was alone in the castle having raised the drawbridge kept them from taking possession of that fortress the magistrates afterwards finding the party so weak made them drunk and took the keys from them Maiden is so near to amsterdam that its cannon may infest the ships which enter that city lewis with a splendid court made a solemn entry into utrecht full of glory because everywhere attended with success though more owing to the cowardice and misconduct of his enemies than to his own valour or prudence three provinces were already in his hands guelderland overissel and utrecht groningen was threatened friesland was exposed the only difficulty lay in holland and zealand and the monarch deliberated concerning the proper measures for reducing them conde and turin 
exhorted him to dismantle all the towns which he had taken except a few and fortifying his main army by the garrisons put himself in a condition of pushing his conquests louvois hoping that the other provinces weak and dismayed would prove an easy prey advised him to keep possession of places which might afterwards serve to retain the people in subjection his counsel was followed though it was found soon after to have been the most impolitic meanwhile the people throughout the republic instead of collecting a noble indignation against the haughty conqueror discharged their rage upon their own unhappy minister on whose prudence and integrity every one formally bestowed the merited applause the bad condition of the armies was laid to his charge the ill choice of governors was ascribed to his partiality as instances of cowardice multiplied treachery was suspected and his former connections with france being remembered the populace believed that he and his partisans had now combined to betray them to their most mortal enemy the prince of orange notwithstanding his youth and inexperience was looked on as the only saviour of the state and men were violently driven by their fears into his party to which they had always been led by favour and inclination amsterdam alone seemed to retain some courage and by forming a regular plan of defence endeavoured to infuse spirit into the other cities the magistrates obliged the burgesses to keep a strict watch the populace whom want of employment might engage to mutiny were maintained by regular pay and armed for the defence of the public some ships which lay useless in the harbour were refitted and stationed to guard the city and the sluices being opened the neighbouring country without regard to the damage sustained was laid under water all the province followed the example and scrupled not in this extremity to restore to the sea those fertile fields which with great art and expense had been won from it the states were assembled to consider whether any means were left to save the remains of their lately flourishing and now distressed commonwealth though they were surrounded with waters which barred all access to the enemy their deliberations were not conducted with that tranquillity which could alone suggest measures proper to extricate them from their present difficulties the nobles gave their vote that provided their religion liberty and sovereignty could be saved everything else should without scruple be sacrificed to the conqueror eleven towns concurred in the same sentiments amsterdam singly declared against all treaty with insolent and triumphant enemies but notwithstanding that opposition ambassadors were dispatched to employ the pity of the two combined monarchs it was resolved to sacrifice to louis maestricht and all the frontier towns which lay without the bounds of the seven provinces and to pay him a large sum for the charges of the war louis deliberated with his ministers louvois and pompon concerning the measures which he should embrace in the present emergence and fortunately for europe he still preferred the violent counsels of the former he offered to evacuate his conquest on condition that all duties lately imposed on the commodities of france should be taken off that the public exercise of the romish religion should be permitted in the united provinces 
the churches shared with the Catholics, and their priests maintained by appointments from the states, that all the frontier towns of the Republic should be yielded to him, together with Nimeguen, Skink, Notzenberg, and that part of Guelderland which lay on the other side of the Rhine, as likewise the Isle of Bommel, that of Vorn, the fortress of St. Andrew, those of Lufstein and Krivakor, that the state should pay him the sum of twenty millions of livres for the charges of the war, that they should every year send him a solemn embassy, and present him with a golden medal, as an acknowledgment that they owed to him the preservation of that liberty which, by the assistance of his predecessors, they had formerly acquired, and that they should give entire satisfaction to the King of England, and he allowed them but ten days for the acceptance of these demands. The ambassadors sent to London met with still worse reception. No minister was allowed to treat with them, and they were retained in a kind of confinement. But notwithstanding this rigorous conduct of the court, the presence of the Dutch ambassadors excited the sentiments of tender compassion, and even indignation, among the people in general, especially among those who could foresee the aim and result of those dangerous counsels. The two most powerful monarchs, they said, in Europe, the one by land, the other by sea, have, contrary to the faith of solemn treaties, combined to exterminate an illustrious republic. What a dismal prospect does their success afford to the neighbors of the one and to the subjects of the other? Charles had formed the Triple League in order to restrain the power of France, a sure proof that he does not now err from ignorance. He had courted and obtained the applauses of his people by that wise measure. As he now adopts contrary counsels, he must surely expect by their means to render himself independent of his people whose sentiments are become so indifferent to him. During the entire submission of the nation, and dutiful behavior of the Parliament, dangerous projects, without provocation, are formed to reduce them to subjection, and all the foreign interests of the people are sacrificed, in order the more surely to bereave them of their domestic liberties. Lest any instance of freedom should remain within their view, the United Province, the real barrier of England, must be abandoned to the most dangerous enemy of England, and by a universal combination of tyranny against laws and liberty, all mankind, who have retained in any degree their precious, though hitherto precarious birthrights, are forever to submit to slavery and injustice. End of section 13, chapter 65, part 4 Recording by Jim Dennison, J I M D E N I S O N Voice dot com.